Welcome to the Three P's of Cancer podcast, where we'll discuss prevention, preparedness, and progress in cancer treatments and research. Brought to you by the University of Michigan Rogel Cancer Center. I'm Scott Redding. We're here with Daniela Whitman, Associate Professor of Urology, who is one of the leading members of the Prostate Cancer Survivorship Program. She is an AASECT Certified Sex Therapist and a Sex Therapy Supervisor, who has over 30 years of psychotherapy experience. Dr. Whitman's research includes the use of mixed methods to study the effect of cancer on sexual health and the development, testing, and dissemination of interventions that promote sexual recovery after cancer treatment. Welcome, Daniela. Hello. Can you tell us about the importance of a prostate cancer survivorship program? Yes. So as you well know, or many people would know, prostate cancer, especially if it's found early, um, is a highly treatable disease. Uh, men are treated and then they spend a lot of uh, years in what we call prostate cancer survivorship, which means that they live not only their regular lives, but they also live with the side effects of the prostate cancer treatment. So our Brandon uh, Prostate Cancer Survivorship Program is devoted to those side effects. And what we do is that we help men and their partners manage expectations for what the side effects of treatment are going to be like. We tell them about the rehabilitation that's available. And then after treatment, we are there as a team to support them, to help them with rehabilitation, uh, both the physiologic, the emotional, and the couple-related aspects. So what would you say out of these expectations um, and some of the concerns that uh, prostate cancer patients have, what would be that number one issue that that men and their partners uh, fear about um, prostate cancer? So... After surgical treatment for prostate cancer, men have two major side effects. One is urinary incontinence, and the other one is erectile dysfunction. Uh, I would say they worry about them both. Um, It kind of depends on the man uh, which one is going to be more bothersome. One of the things that we can reassure men is that over 90% of them will recover bladder control, so they will not be incontinent in the long term. It's a kind of a more short-term bothersome side effect. And the sexual recovery, the recovery of erectile function is much longer and less predictable for the individual man. So we focus quite a bit on that in survivorship, but we certainly help with both. I would say, again, it depends on the individual man and uh, both of them can be bothersome. Addressing those concerns in particular, is this something that is done kind of... pre-surgical, post-surgical, how does that all work? All right, so um, we have kind of a basic package that we offer to every patient. And I want to mention something very important. Partners are always invited to all the appointments in survivorship because we understand that these side effects affect the partner as much as they do the patient. We start with a pre-operative seminar. Before the surgery, we invite men and their partners to um, essentially... Uh, a lecture and discussion about outcomes associated with prostate cancer um, surgery. It's presented by a multidisciplinary team. We have a surgeon, we have nurses, we have physical therapy, and myself, I'm a sex therapist. And we tell them, you know, these are the outcomes you can expect in terms of the cancer. These are the outcomes in urinary incontinence and uh, erectile dysfunction. This is how you're going to likely respond emotionally to all of this. 
And then here are some of the ways in which we help you recover from these side effects. It's kind of our way also of introducing patients and their partners to the team that awaits them after the surgery to support them. You talk about this multidisciplinary team that they get to meet that that is part of their care that at the seminars um, offered. You know, could you go a little more detail about exactly kind of um, what that might look like and what that might entail? Okay, sure. So let me just start out by saying that the minute a patient signs up for surgery, into their calendar of events uh, will be placed this preoperative seminar. And um, we do the seminar once a month uh, for men who are about to undergo surgery the following month. We get about 80% attendance. The people who don't come, largely don't come because they live too far away. They come to a large auditorium. We are um, ready with the PowerPoint presentation where we tell them about the various side effects and outcomes and rehabilitation. They ask questions during it. Uh, and then afterwards, we have a patient and a partner who also participate, who have already been through the experience to answer questions. So at the end, we have a kind of a discussion. Um, and that's how it ends. We ask patients to and partners to evaluate the seminar every month. I should mention that we have been streaming it oh. to um, Midland, to patients there for the past several months. So we are trying to kind of expand the availability. So how are you... Is it determined what kind of uh, a patient partner um, is there to answer the questions? You know, is it someone that's more recently, someone that maybe is a few years out of care? Um, how, how do you determine? Uh, realistically, it's somebody who volunteers. Okay. And, um, and it has to be somebody who's um, probably quite a few months out so that they've sort of come to terms. They've also seen some recovery. They've had enough experience to share it. Somebody who's objective enough to understand that the people he's talking to are anxious. Nobody knows what they're gonna, how they're gonna come out, and so you can't be insisting on your own experience too much. You just really give very general uh, bits of information, but it's based on experience. Do you find that at the seminars that um, it's more the partner? Um, doing the, the questions and the asking, or do, do the men actually, you know, really engage a lot? It's really both. Both okay. the men and the partners ask questions, which is great, because I think people really recognize that it's helpful to them when they uh, know what to expect. It really mitigates the anxiety and the feelings of loss afterwards when they realize they're coping with these side effects, when they kind of have a roadmap. Well, the seminar seems to be really great um, pre-surgical. What is there, you mentioned earlier, you know, that you're also there um, post-surgery too. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? Yes. So the seminar simply prepares men and their partners for the side effects and for how they might react to them. Um, afterwards, you know, every man's experience is different. And so about six weeks after surgery, um, in the program, the patients and partners are invited to meet with um, a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant and with a sex therapist. And the goal is to assess how the side effects are evolving, how the person is improving or not, 
what problems there are to solve, whether people have the right kind of information, and whether they understand the information that they get. Oftentimes, we're reassuring people because they're actually recovering as would be expected, even if they may be in a panic about the leakage and so on. Um, we also, again, provide them with realistic expectations. The other thing that we attend to is the emotional state about it all, because people have very strong emotional reactions to these changes in functioning, which are quite profound. Um, some people respond with tremendous sense of grief and loss. Other people are kind of very matter of fact and realistic. There are questions that partners might have about how to help the men or what's relevant for them. Um, so we try to address all of those things uh, because for people to engage in rehabilitation, they have to be emotionally ready to do it. Um, you know, the research shows that if you just offer men, for example, erectile aids, they don't use them or they try them and don't use them. People need a lot of support in, um, for engaging in sexual activity that is assisted. And they have to understand why they're doing it and how that fits into their overall recovery. So we try to do that to, to help men and their partners um, to feel kind of emotionally supported, not overly upset about what's going on, having realistic expectations, and also to re-engage sexually if that's important to them. Now, you've mentioned a, a few times that, you know, every man is different. But is there kind of a set time frame of when you look at where um, people should be in the recovery from a, a milestone? Yes. So, you know, when people come to us uh, about six weeks after surgery, we expect them not to be doing well in anything. Um, but many of them are already recovering bladder control at that time. Some are recovering erectile function. The first year is probably quite informative, uh, certainly about incontinence. Over 90% of men should be using no or one pad per day uh, for incontinence by the end of the year. Um, when it comes to erectile function, that can take two or more years for recovery, depending on baseline function, age, nerve sparing surgery, and so on. But there are some indicators, you know, of how the recovery is going in the first year. Some of the, the men that maybe are concerned of, okay, I'm just going to be incontinent for the rest of my life. That's not necessarily true. And, and in fact, probably majority should be okay within a year or so. Yes. They should expect to be pretty much dry. One of the things that I should mention is that four weeks after surgery, we send all men to physical therapy for pelvic floor rehabilitation. It tremendously helps with the recovery of bladder control, and we encourage men to exercise the pelvic floor for the rest of their lives. Talk a little bit more about the pelvic floor rehabilitation. Yes. So the pelvic floor supports um, the bladder and uh, supports the prostate when it's still there. Uh, after the surgery, when the bladder neck may not be as strong as it used to be, the uh, uh, valve in the pelvic floor or the pelvic floor uh, helps support the bladder and hold the continence in. So um, men are encouraged to do exercises to strengthen the pelvic floor and sometimes to um, relax some of the muscles because they could be overly tight. And uh, physical therapists are uniquely equipped um, to um, assess the functioning of the pelvic floor and help men have a well-toned pelvic floor for that, for that purpose. 
And then what other kind of rehabilitation would men potentially be uh, need to focus on? So I just talked to you about the incontinence. For sexual rehabilitation, we um, encourage men to create blood flow in the penis uh, to keep the tissues of the penis healthy uh, and also to stretch the penis because it tends to shrink a bit after surgery. We do that by encouraging them to use vacuum devices. We encourage them to take medications. We call them PDE5 inhibitors like sildenafil to help with the blood flow. And we encourage them to stimulate the orgasm to keep the sexual response going. And that is something that remains available to men even if they don't have erectile function. And would you say... Patients that go through this kind of, uh, I hate to use the word regimen, but we're yeah. talking about it rehab. It's a regimen, so, it's rehab. Um, but, you know, that they go through this process, have a, um, potentially have a, a much better uh, long-term outcome compared to maybe patients that don't go through a similar type of a program? For the incontinence, um, there are some trials that have shown that it improves continence early, so it helps with achieving continence status earlier. Uh, penile rehabilitation, as we call it, doesn't necessarily help men recover erectile function, but it keeps the tissues healthy while they're waiting for any kind of natural response to return. It also helps them remain engaged in sexual activity because they're attending to their sexual function. The stretching can be important because if you're leaving any organ in the body unattended, it tends to atrophy. So we want to make sure that men, A, if they want to have a penis that's either normal length or close to their usual length, that we give them every opportunity. And then also if they want to be sexually active, maybe a year from now that they're doing everything they can to keep the penile tissues healthy. You know, we again talk about the rehab side of stuff, but by having them be engaged in these things, does that also help with their emotional state too? Yes, we, we believe so. Yes, it absolutely does. You know, one of the things that prostate cancer used to be known for was that it was the end of sex life. And it no longer is because men can uh, learn how to create erections using you know, vacuum devices, injections, and so on and so forth, and later on even sildenafil and other PD-5 inhibitors. So they can recover erectile function even if it's assisted. And uh, men and partners can learn how to be sexually active in this new setting. It sometimes means overcoming barriers because people complain about sort of the the feeling of loss about spontaneous sex because sex becomes unspontaneous. And uh, sometimes they feel like sex is too much work when they have to use sexual aids. And so, you know, we tend to say to them, look, in a way, um, spontaneity is replaced with anticipation. You can have dates where you know you're going to be making love and you can plan for them and plan something fun and um, think of them in that way. And many couples, I would say, if they are guided and supported do do that and for some men sexual erectile function recovers after a year or so or sometimes even sooner and that becomes encouraging to them and that way they no longer have to worry about losing their sex lives. We focused a lot on prostate cancer um, and, I, and I know the program is a prostate cancer survivorship program but I got to assume that these are also issues and concerns for um, other urologic cancers like bladder cancer and testicular cancer. 
They definitely are. Bladder cancer patients, if they are men, and the majority of bladder cancer patients are men, often lose their prostate right along with their bladder if they are treated with the removal of the bladder. And so they experience similar things as prostate cancer patients. So that is very relevant for them. Uh, for them, there's an additional issue that if they have a urinary diversion, which is like a stoma on their belly, they might deal with other issues related to body image and certainly would benefit and do benefit from support. Some of the bladder cancer patients are women and they, if they are treated with um, a cystectomy, if they lose their bladder, often use their uterus, lose their uterus and their ovaries, which throws them into menopause. And for some of them, that would be premature menopause. So they have to cope with those side, side effects and again, benefit from education and support. In testicular cancer, those are often younger men, so infertility is an issue, as well as body image from the point of view of losing a testicle and then having to decide whether to have a prosthesis or not and sort of questions about erectile function. So absolutely, really, if I could be as broad, almost any cancer treatment results in some type of at least temporary sexual side effect and support is critical for people recovering their sexual relationships well. So far, we've talked about what we currently are doing. And you've mentioned about research showing certain effects for uh, treatments and recovery for patients. What's kind of the future look like and what kind of research is being done right now for prostate cancer survivors? Much of the research that is being done in the world that I live in is psychosocial support. There has been a lot of research done on reversing erectile dysfunction, for example. So that's its own world. And what we in the psychosocial world have discovered is that it is important for men and couples to receive support for the emotional side effects, for the sexual side effects, for just kind of getting through the difficult time of entering survivorship or even in the long term. So I work in the realm of sexual health. In the realm of sexual health, we have been developing interventions to support men and couples. We have found that couple interventions tend to be perhaps more effective even in supporting men themselves. And so much of the research is going into that. One of the uh, frustrations in survivorship is that sexual health support is really not available in most practices, the treatment for prostate cancer. So in my own research, I was able to get funding with a group of experts around the country to um, develop a um, web-based intervention to support men and partners in prostate cancer survivorship so that they can recover their sexual relationships. We have a program here, a wonderful program, the Center for Health Communication Research that has been the technical arm of this research project. We started in 2015. Uh, we developed the intervention. We tested it uh, in uh, six institutions around the country. Mm. And now it's becoming available to men in Michigan and to patients in those six institutions Next year, the Movember Foundation hopes to roll it out nationally. That means that men, wherever they live, 
and their partners will be able to access this intervention, which basically starts pre-treatment and goes all the way to 12 months after treatment. Uh, they can access it as long as they have internet. What I should mention is that this intervention is tailored to treatment type. So men with, treated with radiation, mm -hmm. men treated with hormonal therapy, we'll also have their content there. It's um, tailored to sexual orientation. So both gay and heterosexual men can access it. And it's also uh, tailored to partnerships. So there's content there for single men as well as men in partnerships. How does this current research play into the clinical care as well? I mean, obviously this web-based um, program is, sounds very similar to the seminar, but um, you know, what other, what are, how does it all fit in together? I would say that we see as a part of our mission to conduct research to um, understand what the critical issues are in survivorship and to develop interventions, you know, our own clinical interventions that are evidence-based. And for that purpose, we conduct research to make sure that we stay on the cutting edge and that we are kind of uh, where we should be. So we have a number of projects that we are working on here. Just to give you some examples, there are a couple of faculty that work on different projects on mindfulness meditation, one to help patients with prostate cancer and their partners with the stress around the surgery, another one to help men with anxiety while they're on active surveillance. Uh, we have a project where there's, there's a way of trying to understand um, the need for the implementation of low-value hormonal therapy for prostate cancer patients who are obviously perhaps not benefiting. We have a, a project that we are developing with another institution on women's sexuality uh, in bladder cancer and another one on partners of, of men with prostate cancer. So we try to understand the whole field, in a sense, as much as possible from the point of view of understanding that survivorship support is important, that survivorship care is important, that it's not just about curing the cancer, although obviously it is that, mm -hmm. and that patients and their partners benefit when we offer them interventions that are based on evidence. You know, what? what's kind of the average participation? I mean, is it determined, again, by volunteers, you talk about the, the patient coming and talking to the seminar. Is it volunteers or is it, you know, are there certain elements like, because it's not a typical clinical trial, what would you think in a clinical trial where you need to meet certain criteria? How is it determined with participation in these interventions? You know, obviously all these participations are voluntary. And I would say, I can only speak really for my own research. Typically in sexual health research in cancer, the, the participation is anywhere between 33 to 38%. Um, in this most recent study, we've had over 40% participation. Um, so, you know, this has to be people who are number one, interested in sexual recovery. Number two, are willing to participate in a trial. Um, Many people we have learned participate because they feel strongly they want to help other people. And then at the end, they realize they derive benefits for themselves as well. Well, Danielle, it's been a great 
um, treasure trove of information, I think, uh, for many people uh, with today's conversation. What, you know, as we wrap up here, what is the big takeaway that, you know, you'd want people to, to know? I think perhaps the most important thing is that people should be educated about the side effects of cancer treatment. Um, my area is sexual health, but there may be other side effects so that they can anticipate how they're going to react, how their bodies are going to react. And then secondarily, they should be educated what kind of rehabilitation is available and where they can get it because that kind of support is critical to their quality of life. Great. Well, thank you again. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and tell us what you think of this podcast by rating and reviewing us. If you have suggestions for additional topics, you can send them to cancercenter at med.umich.edu or message us on Twitter at umrogocancer. You can continue to explore the three P's of cancer by visiting rogocancercenter.org. Mm-hmm.